Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Dover. What I was really talking about is there's a lot of ideas right now that are in this country that are dark ideas. Building walls, uh, dividing this country, marginalizing trans members who are troops, marginalizing kids who are transgender, not supporting DACA kids, literally polluting our air and our water. These are the devil's schemes To me, yes. These are all things that come from the darkness that are ripping children from their mother's arms. That's outrageous. Today's guest... New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. In some ways, this interview has been nine years in the making. I was there that day in Albany in January 2009, in the basement of a building on the state capitol complex, when David Patterson, who was then the governor, announced that he was appointing her to Hillary Clinton's Senate seat. It was a mess. Obama, three days into being president, called in the middle of it. Her young son was sitting there out in front, in the middle of the stage, which was full of basically every prominent politician in New York most of whom had already been feeding quotes to me and other people about how they didn't know why Patterson had picked her. And at the end of it, all the reporters rushed on to get quotes, and the whole thing just became a free-for-all. She was not very good at being in front of people in those days. She stumbled through the early appearances, and had most of the Democrats in the state continuing to say that she didn't deserve the job. And they were starting to look at running against her, to support other people to run against her. She changed her positions on a number of key issues quickly. She explained it by saying she was representing the state versus representing her house district in the Hudson Valley in New York. I covered all those primary challenges that started up and then fell apart. And you know what? She steamrolled through all of them, ended them before they really began, with a sharp sense of politics that really caught my eye, refusal to let anyone beat her. Still, thinking back on 2009, it was a much different person than I found looking across the table at me in her office in the Russell Senate building, right across the street from the Capitol. There's a sensibility that you'll hear out of her in this interview of good and evil rooted in religious terms that ties into some of the themes that have been coming up in other conversations we've been having in recent weeks. Like when I started out in that interview with Jimmy Carter and asked him how some people read the same verses and had the same beliefs as Christians, and some of them came out as Democrats and some came out as Republicans. It seems hard to believe, but she really does have a a fervor of her own, a pugilistic sense of Christianity that makes her a liberal. It's, as one of her advisors put it to me, the meek shall inherit the earth part of the New Testament, not so much the rules and laws of God that others see the Bible as being about. Please go onto the website at politico.com and you'll see the story based in this interview, which gets into that and more of her approach overall to the Senate, which has made her a hero to some and made other people go crazy. She's loved and she's hated, and it's all from throwing herself out front on a number of key issues. As her first House campaign manager put it to me, she knows more than anything how to best leverage the Senate. We're in a modern America, and the Senate is a platform that if you use it right, you can advance an agenda, and that's what she's done. And yeah, this is all building up to the presidential run in 2020 that most expect she'll make. If she sees what Donald Trump is doing is evil, I asked her, then by her measure, doesn't she have a moral Christian obligation to run to stop him? You'll hear her answer. But first, remember to subscribe. However you're listening on whatever platform. Tell someone you know. Tell two people you know. Rate us. Leave a review. Episodes coming up include Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, and many more. And if you're not following me on Twitter yet, please do that too, at Isaac Dover. You'll see tweets about upcoming episodes, but you'll also see a lot of other tweets about articles I'm working on that don't have to do with the podcast and that other people are working on that I don't want you to miss. Email me your thoughts at isaacatpolitico.com and give me your guest suggestions, reactions to this episode, or any others. And now, my conversation with Kirsten Gillibrand. 
Tell me about being in Roger Ailes' office. So when I was first appointed to the Senate, one of my jobs early on became to carry the 9-11 health bill. And it hadn't gotten very far in the Senate. It had never had a hearing. The House had had, I think, something like 20 hearings. They'd been working it for seven years, but getting nowhere. And I'd heard a little bit that Roger was very um, grateful, enormous gratitude towards our military, towards public service, uh, lived right near West Point. And so we had the thought that maybe this might be an issue that he would also care about because we knew it had to be bipartisan. I mean, I knew from the beginning this could not be something Democrats could carry on our own. It needed to be something we all agreed on as a moral duty. And so we took the shot and just asked for the meeting. Uh, we able went into his office. Um, it was a lot of TV screens. And, you know, he, he was gracious enough to let us in the office. And so I just started to talk about the Nylum first responders and what was happening to them and why these men and women who were so brave to run up towers when literally everyone else was running down did such extraordinary things on 9-11 in the weeks and months thereafter that we needed to have their backs. And he was really open to it. And when we told him the details, the fact that first responders came from every state in the country, this wasn't just a New York issue, even though he cares deeply about New York because he lived in New York, this was this was a national issue, and it was a question of who we are as, a, as Americans. And he was interested. And this is before this is two thousand ten. Right when I was right. appointed. So, so like two thousand nine. I was right. appointed in yeah. nine. And, right. And one of the first things. Uh, so it was before any of the stuff came out about him with oh, all. Oh yeah, things. we we just thought he was you know the person behind Fox News <laughs> and was you know not in agreement with us on ninety nine point nine percent of things, but we thought maybe this is one common ground. Was it hard, given that you knew he was the guy behind Fox News, even though you were trying to find the common ground on this? Was it hard to not talk at all? To- it's it's never hard to talk some to somebody you disagree with if you know there's something that you might share, and that's one of the things that sounds a little like it's it's I, it sounds that way, but it is that way, and I'll tell you why. When I was a House member, um, my district was two to one Republican, mm-hmm. so I literally didn't have a mayor or a county executive or a um, local elected leader who wasn't Republican. And so I really got used to when I'm serving in the district, you know, having a meeting with the local town supervisors, it'd be a room full of Republican, mostly men. And so I really learned pretty quickly that if I'm going to solve the problems of my district, I need to listen to the people who are representing people to hear what's on their top 10 list. Yeah. Like what, what are you healing, hearing and feeling? And so I always had a very favorable working relationship with all of the people who represented towns and counties in my district. But Ailes is different from the Republican county exec. Well, you, you did feel a little bit like you were going into the, you know, the mouth of, <laughs> of a huge... <laughs> it's a podcast, so we can't capture so, yeah, what you're so, doing uh-huh. there. <laughs> the mouth of the beast, whatever it is. I mean, you do, it, it was intimidating for me personally, because yeah. he's extraordinarily powerful, disagrees with me on most things. Yeah. But it was worth the risk because I knew that this has to start from a place of bipartisanship. And uh, we already had the help of Peter King. And Peter King Mm -hmm. was an extraordinary- Congressman from New York. Congressman from New York. Republican. Who who was working really hard in the House side. So we had Peter King on the Republican side. Uh, We also knew we would have Mark Kirk because Mm -hmm. he was- uh, Senator from Illinois at the time. Who had just also become a senator from the House and he had supported it on the House side. So we knew we had just a little bit of, of Republican support. But I also knew it had to be a lot more than that. And so I was looking for a way to have a narrative outside of what's happening in the House and Senate 
on a national level. And I knew if I could interest someone who writes the news for Fox News, decides what to produce, Mm -hmm. what kind of shows, what kind of um, priorities, it could be a powerful ally. And I was willing to take that risk because if he said yes, it would make a difference. And I knew it would make a difference. I want to take you back to December to when that morning that President Trump tweeted about you and a story that at the time I thought was too good to be true, but I know is true, which is that you were actually in Bible study when that happened. Um, And the tweet for the people who don't remember was lightweight Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, a total flunky for Chuck Schumer and someone who would come to my office begging for campaign contributions. And that's begging in quotes, not so long ago and would do anything for them is now in the ring fighting against Trump, very disloyal to bill and crooked used in all capital letters. So you're in Bible study. How often do you go to Bible study? Does it just happen that you were in Bible study that morning? So uh, over the last couple of years, I've really made this a priority for myself because it really, I really enjoy it. It's a way for me to get to know Republican senators who we don't agree with a lot on. Um, and it's also a way for me to continue in my faith and feel centered and, and just have that touch point. So I and you're go, Catholic. I'm Catholic and a couple other senators are Catholic. Mike Rounds goes, he's mm-hmm. Catholic. Um, the others are various versions of Protestant. Um, so it's, there's a Tuesday morning Bible study, uh, which is a newer Bible study by the freshman senators that some of them came over from the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Langford started that one. From and Oklahoma. Then, yeah. And then lunch, uh, then on Wednesdays, um, I go to the prayer breakfast, which is an institution. Different senators go to that. Mm-hmm. A couple uh, pro- um, do both. So Langford goes and Rounds goes to that too. Uh, and that's really uh, non-denominational. Mm-hmm. P- people come in and talk about why faith is important to them. But we had Maisie Hirono come in and talk about her faith. Chuck Schumer has talked about his faith. So mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to be Christian. And then on uh, Thursdays, the chaplain has a, a Bible study at lunch, uh, Dr. Black. And so I go to that one. And that's different. So you're hitting a Bible three. study I do lunch three related things a week. Every week. I do. Is it open up actually to the relationships that you have with these people? It seems like with Langford, you actually have a relationship that came from that. Yeah. And he's a pretty conservative Republican from Oklahoma. And we're working on a bill now uh, to deal with um, adoption Mm -hmm. and the foster care system. I want to come back to this. But and Mike I, Rounds are working mm-hmm. together in armed services. So we're trying really hard to work together on some cyber issues. And so, but I, it's a way to get to know people that you're not going to see in the rest of your day. Yeah. And I know that the only way to pass legislation is if it starts from a place of bipartisanship, that it starts from a co- piece of common ground, whatever it might be. And that's why any bill I've ever passed uh, has been bipartisan from the beginning. Like yeah. you have to start from that place of bipartisanship. But it also starts from a place, it seems like, with you of like, founding it in this sense of like the right and the wrong. Right. right? Absolutely. And that's where the common ground is. I mean, America was founded on this principle that there very much is right versus wrong. And that, you know, our job is to care about one another, to really live by this golden rule that is a shared value that we want to care about one another. And and what makes us really powerful is when we care about others more than ourselves, which is why we do things like have a public school system. We have public roads. We have public hospitals. Like we believe the, you know, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is about core opportunities in your life to live the American dream, to earn your way into the middle class. I mean, those that's the whole principle that the greatness of America is really founded on. And every generation has tried to improve upon that, making, making sure more people had a seat at the table every time. Yeah. And so if you focus on those sort of core values, you're going to find that common ground somewhere. And 9-11 Health was a perfect example because everyone believes that our first responders sacrificed 
Um, everyone believes that they shouldn't now be dying in their 40s and 50s of cancers that only people in their 80s and 90s are having. And they believe that it's the right thing to do to stand by them because they stood by us. So it all comes out of this, this moral belief that's very much a shared value. So I don't do Bible study once a week, but I'm going to quote some Bible at you. Go ahead. Some quote it back at you, that, but I have to read it. This is you at Al Sharpton's National Action Network oh, yeah. uh, for the uh, 50th anniversary of the King assassination. And you were reading from Ephesians. And it seemed like you were doing this a little bit from memory, but yeah. I can't do it from memory. So put this is what you said. Put, exactly. Put on the full armor of God mm-hmm. so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That was right. so scary. Um, <laughs> they, and the context of this, you were talking about yeah. the fights with, fight with Donald Trump. Trump yes. Yeah. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness right. in yes. place. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can distinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. <laughs> take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Uh, that is pretty stark language to be talking about the president of the United States. And is he the devil? Well, is he evil? It wasn't specifically <laughs> about uh, the president. but well, That was the but- lead up to what you're... It's not specifically about the president. It's about ideas that are evil. It's about darkness, which is rooted in hate. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just as MLK Jr. always talked about light and dark, that darkness, uh, the only way you can beat darkness is with light, that truth comes is the one thing that can solve these problems. And so what I was really talking about is there's a lot of ideas right now that are in this country that are dark ideas, building walls, uh, dividing this country, marginalizing trans members who are troops, marginalizing kids who are transgender, not supporting DACA kids, literally polluting our air and our water. These are the devil's schemes tearing, too? To me, yes. These are all things that come from the darkness that are ripping children from their mother's arms that's outrageous. I mean, that is not a positive, good thing. It is an evil, dark thing. And so it's really a question of who are we as a nation? And these actions by our president don't represent our values as a country. But by the associative property here, Mm. aren't you saying that by pushing all these things that are part of the devil schemes that President Trump is pushing the devil schemes here? Uh, You could say that if you were talking in Christian language and you were the one right, regular civilian. Not, in the, I would not be the one quoting. in the civilian world. You would just say um, those are horrible, outrageous things that we should fight against because they're harmful and they hurt people. And so we don't really talk about good and evil in our day jobs, but uh, we certainly talk about policies that harm people and are hurtful and are um, cruel and a lot of the policies that this president has put forward are harmful and cruel. And if you want to call it evil, because that's your word, you can. But Well, that was the passage you yeah, read. And to my audience, <laughs> they believe it's evil. So this, You believe it's evil? I do. I think, and, and I think so much of the role of government is to help people. Government exists to make a difference in people's lives, to actually do things that are good, support what's right, and try to end things that aren't right, that are bad. So the reason why you have the EPA is because just because a company wants to pollute the ground and the air and the water, just because a company could make more money by putting PFOA into their products and then having it in wastewater, government exists to say, no, that's not 
That's not supportive of the common good. That is going to harm people. It's going to hurt children. It's going to create disabilities in children. It's going to harm pregnant women. Like you make decisions about what is helpful and what is hurtful every single day. And that is actually one of the most important roles of government. Do you think in your mind the Trump presidency so far has done lasting damage to the country? So I don't, I, I think you can undo a lot of damage. Uh, I think one of the things he has done, though, is put a Supreme Court justice, mm-hmm. Neil Gorsuch, uh, on the Supreme Court that is going to write some of the most harmful legislation we can imagine uh, because he is so intelligent, but he is also so wrong when it comes to substance. And so that has a lasting impact. He might be on that court 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah. We don't know how long he'll live. It's a lifetime appointment. And so with every judge, the president gets to choose. If he's picking radical right-wing judges, those are lasting impacts. Things like stepping away from the global climate accords, we at least have strong mayors and governors across mm-hmm. this country who say, I'm not going to be part of that and we will meet our goals regardless. So some things don't have to be lasting. You can fight back on them more immediately. And some things uh, come election day, we might be able to take our country back and actually flip the House, flip the Senate and be able to block any any future legislation that would have these harmful effects. Do you think he's uncorked something in the culture and in our society? You were talking at the National Election Network about what happened in Charlottesville last year and about the hate. You're just talking about that. that Does that have a lasting impact? Hopefully it's something we can recover from. But the truth is, is in my state, the number of hate crimes has increased exponentially against every type of group you could identify. Yeah. So whether it's racism, whether it's sexism, whether it's uh, homophobia, whether it's um, anti-Semitism, huge rise. And you think that's from President Trump? I think his language is so toxic. And I think for the people who hear what he says, I think there's been a lot of permission given uh, in their minds. And so they're more willing to use language that we would not have been used before President Trump was our president. And so unfortunately, this rise in hate crimes, this rise in bullying in schools, rise in, um, you really have to ask, you know, is this language responsible for at least some of it? And I worry deeply that it is. And so I think we have to uh call on him when he's wrong. And that's why the Charlottesville issue was so relevant. I mean, to create a moral equivalency was racist. Well, I I said about that and I said it on the air when it happened uh, on MSNBC at one point that if thinking Nazis are bad makes me a biased journalist, then I, I guess I'm biased, right? Like Nazis are just bad. Um, and it was a weird moment for the country that seemed like it would be a defining moment, but right. so much has well, happened since August. I do believe there are right? objective truths, and that is an yeah. objective truth. Uh, and we need to be very clear about that. I mean, there is right versus wrong. Unfortunately, wrong is winning in a lot of ways. And so what my job is, is to stand firm, to stand strong, um, have the belt of truth around my waist. <laughs> you can use any imagery you want, but that is what I feel called to do. And I do feel a lot of this is a battle because it is a battle of ideas. It's a battle of priorities. Yeah. Uh, it's a battle of doing what's right, even when it's hard. And this president, I think, is leading the country in a very wrong direction. And so our job is to try to push it back in the right direction. You have two sons, right? Yes. How old are they? Theodore is, nickname is Theo. He's 14. Henry is 10. What do you tell them about what's going on in the country? They're in this place and their development as kids where they're aware of the world, but they're obviously still figuring out who they are. So 
The 10-year-old generally understands uh, what I do and why I do it. And he's very savvy. The 14-year-old understands everything. The 10-year-old said to me, why didn't you pick me up on time? Because he wanted an early pickup. This was like two days ago. And he's assessing whether whatever my impediment was that he needed to know what it was because he wanted to make sure it was important enough. And so the reason why I was late that day is because I had a meeting about the farm bill mm -hmm. and I was learning about whether we were going to protect our dairy farmers. And one of the biggest challenges we have in New York is dairy farmers are going out of business. But worse than that, they are literally committing suicide because they're so hopeless. Mm -hmm. And I had to really talk quite intensely about what's happening in their lives to try to get some provisions in the bill that are going to matter to New York farmers. And so Henry listened to my reason and he said, okay, you, you, you can protect the dairy farmer's mom. There is, <laughs> but, but like if there's a, if I said I was like cleaning my office, he would have been infuriated, but he, so, so they do get that with my job comes some sacrifice by themselves. Like I've missed things or I might have to be away during something they, they want me not to be away for. And so I always have to tell them why. Uh, and that and that brings them into my job. And it also it is a shared sacrifice and something that we care about deeply as a family. And my husband has always been that way, too. He's just said, as long as you are helping people, you know, we will we are behind you. I remember hearing Samantha Power when she was ambassador to the U.N. telling a mm -hmm. story. And her son was maybe like eight at the time and wanted her attention. It was like while the Syria crisis was happening. Yeah. and. Finally, was like, she's on the phone. She's like, I'll get to you. And he's like, Putin, 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 Putin. <laughs> <That's really funny. laughs> but what I mean is like thinking about, you're talking about the world in a, a battle of ideas, wrong mm. versus right. Mm. And these boys figuring out who they are as yeah. human beings in the world. Yes. What do you tell them about that? So um, we talk about this a lot because uh, they're young and they're forming who they're going to mm -hmm. be. And I'm very clear that there is right versus wrong and that your job in life is to help other people and make their lives better. And that, that is winning. Do they so, feel so challenged really define, by what's happening? No. Uh, I'm trying to define to them what winning looks like. Winning means you are making a difference in somebody's life who really needs your help, not making a billion dollars, not getting the corner office, mm -hmm. not you know, whatever it is for anybody else, but that for our family, this is what is, this is what we are doing. And this is what I think life is about. And I'm just giving them my take on what I think life's about. <laughs> I mean, not well, be it's right. pretty important coming from their mother. Right? I might not be right, but if I can instill this value that helping others is not only a core belief, but really what we're built for and that you feel most fulfilled when you are doing something for others, not yourself. And that it's worth it. Um, and it's worth everything. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm trying to instill upon them as as their mother. What do you? They're they're growing up as boys and mm -hmm. they're teenage years and about to be teenage years for the younger one, I guess. As you are the forefront of this fight on sexual right. harassment right. and rethinking the relationship between men and women in society, mm -hmm. what does that do to how you're talking to them about what's going on and their understanding of so it. So I don't talk to the 10-year-old yet about that as yeah. much. But the 14-year-old, we've had very serious conversations over the last year. And, you know, lucky for him, he's also had a very supportive school where they actually do consent education. Mm -hmm. They they uh, learn about what does a healthy relationship actually look like. Starting from that young, right? Yeah, from, from they start doing it 13 Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe a little bit of 12, but 13, 14. And so I really have spent time talking to Theo about those issues and, and sort of 
why I feel so passionately about it and to to understand why I feel so passionately because he may never feel vulnerable in his life. He may never feel unsafe in his life. And I need him to know what that feels like because uh, you have to understand how your actions and your words affect others deeply. And when it comes to relationships, you really have to work hard to get it right. Have you had that moment where you felt the vulnerability yourself? Many uh, times. I mean, just in life. Yes. I mean, as a woman and that's all of- the time. I mean, women feel, I feel marginalized, not listened to, um, irrelevant, not important, um, depending on the job, depending on the, how old I was, depending on what my circumstances was. But I, I shared in my book a few, a few uh, stories mm-hmm. about uh, how, for some reason, women's uh, appearance is so important to everything and uh, how that really dra- detracts from mm-hmm. uh, their strength and ability because, and it's done intentionally, it's used to undermine them. And so I just used a story about how when I was working really hard on a case when I was a lawyer for years and I was running aspects of the case and when we were having a celebratory dinner, my boss at the time you know, gets up to toast everyone and when he gets to me, he said, well, well let's thank Kirsten for all her hard work and all those weekends, but don't you just love her haircut? Doesn't she just, I mean, literally in the middle of like, now I was fine because everybody in the room knew me and knew I worked super hard and my haircut was irrelevant. But if I was in a room with partners who'd never worked with me right. or, I mean, that would have been really harmful to my career. And so, so you deal with gender bias in all instances, in all places, but you also learn very early how to navigate it effectively. Yeah. But it does make you feel a little more vulnerable that like, you know, just because you're a hard worker, just because you get an A, just because you have a great resume, just because it doesn't mean you're going to get to where you want to go. And so you just learn skills to navigate as best you can, deal with the circumstances you're given. And and that's what everybody does, frankly. But there are going to be certain biases because you're a woman. In the same way, there's so much institutional racism. And if you happen to have the intersection of being a woman and black, uh, you may have, you know, triple the number of of impediments, challenges, obstructions that you've got to navigate um, in order to get to where you want to go. When everything sort of got lit up on this in October by the Harvey Weinstein stuff, and then there was this moment where (laughs) there was rumors that uh, different newsrooms were working on stories, uh, 25 members of Congress. That story never came out. At one point, uh, people thought it was in the New York Times, and people thought it was at the Washington Post, people thought it was a Politico. Are there stories still of sexual harassment among members of the House and the Senate that have not come out? I don't know, but uh, we know that over the last 10 years, there were $17 million of settlements paid for various kinds of harassment or discrimination. We don't know how many were sexual harassment or gender discrimination. We don't know the specifics of any case because the way it's reported today is it's very uh, globally reported. Uh, But you know, there was at least $17 million of payoffs in the last 10 years, which is a lot of money. Um, And so one of the reasons why I felt so passionate about changing the rules here in the Senate and the House is because the structure of how you would actually report one of these cases is so corrupted. I mean, it's it's designed entirely to protect predators. You would have to wait up to three months to report what happened to you because they had a month of mandatory mm-hmm. uh, mediation followed by up to a month of counseling, uh, followed by a month of cooling off before you could actually report. <laughs> and then if there was a settlement, the taxpayers paid it. So what our bill fundamentally did was unwind those two big things add a survey so that every person who works here on the Hill, including interns, could fill out a survey every two years. Uh, and also, you have to post the rules because nobody yeah. even knew where to report or what the rules were. Uh, and that if the member of Congress was the harasser, they have to pay. It was October personally. when this started coming. It's yeah. June. We still don't have a bill that's been signed yeah. here. 
How is it taking this long? Well, that was one of my worries because <laughs> I started the clock at 90 days since right. the House had passed their bill unanimously. So I really wanted to create the climate where doing nothing was not okay. And so we tried to create as much pressure and intensity about why this is but so, so important. so far we've done so we've nothing passed our firm, version. Right? No, no, we passed our version right. at least. And so now it arguably needs to go to conference. If, if the House is unwilling to vote on our bill, which would be the simplest way to pass the bill, if they're unwilling to vote on our bill, then they need to conference it. So we're waiting for a conference committee to be named. And then uh, we need to get another vote and hopefully uh, have a strong enough bill that it's worth our vote. There are people in the House who don't want to pass the Senate bill because they say uh, the Senate bill waters down this language of discrimination versus harassment. And so they want to go to conference. They don't want to just pass the Senate bill. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of room for change from a, a bigger bill to get passed in the Senate at this point. Are you worried that this could end up just still getting frozen for months and months with that? No, I think there's a lot of common ground between the two bills. I mean, the two bills started the same. And so they did a little tweaking. Yeah. And then our group of senators who were in charge did a little bit of tweaking. So, But the hallmarks of both bills is the same. Yeah. You've got the elimination of the three months. You've got the um, reporting of the rules. You've got the survey and you've got the member pays and those are really important. And so even though our bills may be only 90% of where we started, mm -hmm. the 90% that's there is great. So we might as well at least pass that if we can. But you think there's room for another Senate vote on a different bill or that, that the I house do. doesn't I think I yeah. think if we passed my my first version, yeah. it still would have passed unanimously because I don't think anybody would have had the guts to vote against it. So <laughs> so I think we can get there. Whatever version comes out of conference, if it's a little closer to the original bill, fine, great. Yeah. I think we still pass it. Then if you pass it and you think you pass it in the next couple of weeks, months, is it going to be? Know. I might have to start another clock. I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's frustrating to me because this should be the most easy, fundamental thing we could do is make this a safe workplace for men and women who work here. It, 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 is, it, it seems to be like a fundamental thing about Congress where it's like people see on a lot of issues can say like, oh, yeah, something needs to be done about this. And yeah. then- it doesn't happen or it, ha it takes a year. Or well, whatever, I will, right? I will continue to start, you know, making waves and, and, <laughs> and rattling the cages. And I will start making noise that this needs to be voted on now, because sometimes you just have to create that climate where people will work and actually realize people care, like they deeply care and we need to fix our rules and this shouldn't be belittled and it shouldn't be marginalized and it shouldn't be ignored. I was thinking as I was walking over here, I was at the press conference for your appointment in 2009, mm -hmm. which was a bit of a mess um, in Albany, uh, in the basement of an office building there. President Obama, fresh in office, called in the middle of the press conference, right? You were in Albany? I was in Albany. Oh, my goodness. That's <laughs> funny. And you had to go to the back of the stage. You see, right? I had Henry on the front yeah. of the stage yeah. sleeping. Yeah. No, Henry, actually, Henry sat next to Jonathan, and I put him... He your was, husband. Yeah, Jonathan. Yeah. And so he stayed in his seat. But little Theo had a fever that day. So he sat right at the podium <laughs> because he wanted to be near his mother. And I was like, Theo, just sit quietly. And then you guys start and you're standing there with David Patterson, who was, you know, a complicated character in his own right. And then like they said that Barack Obama's on the phone. And yeah, did, I didn't right? think he was actually on right. the phone. I thought he was just trying to call. But, it, you know, it might have been better for me just to... But it, it felt so... I was so nervous. I was like, what am I supposed to do? Should I just finish this so I right. can... Like, and they were like, no, you I, have to I go. I didn't want to make all those people wait. 
And I didn't think he was actually on the phone. I figured it was the operator who was going to ding us in whenever. <laughs> like, you know, I didn't actually think, yeah, he's right here on the phone. Like, and I don't think he was on the phone. I think he was an operator away. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, just I'll, as, I'll call back as soon as, you know. So my memories of those early days were that like things were also for you, like a little bit of a mess. There was a, a famously a, a breakfast that was your first event, the Association for Better of New York, the Apney Breakfast, that yeah. it was like everything was crazy. It was so you have such a different approach now to things and a different sort of presence and bearing than you did yeah. in those days. You learn. What? You just learn. I mean, going from uh, upstate New York house district to the entire state of New York to yeah. 20 million people, it's a very different job. And I just knew I had a lot to learn and I was going to learn it as fast as I could. And I was going to serve the people of the state as well as I served my district. It starts with listening. It starts with figuring out what are the priorities. It starts by finding common ground. And you do get more confidence over time to speak from your heart, to speak about what matters most to you, to reveal. I mean, one of my biggest challenges, I put this in the book too, but as a early politician, public servant is in the law, you never talk about yourself. You never right. talk about your why. Like, why do you care? Nobody cares what you care. Nobody cares what you think. They just want to know what the legal advice is. So, like, you really subsume your personality and your pers- and your personal life as a lawyer. No, you don't, never talk about your right. kids. You never talk about what's in your heart ever. Like, ever. And you would never talk about your faith ever. Like you just do your job and you write the brief and you do the deposition or whatever you're asked to do. In this job, people want to know why you want the Mm -hmm. job. They want to know what are you going to do with it when you get there? Why do you care? Why are these your priorities? Why are you working on this stuff? And I've really learned over time and I've learned it from my colleagues uh, when I really needed advice on the 9-11 health Mm -hmm. bill. I mean, I had no clue what to do to pass that bill. But one of the things I did do was go to Mary Landrieu and said, you know, you passed, you know, from Louisiana. The center, yeah, she, right? she just passed a huge amount of money for her state because of Hurricane Katrina. I was like, how did you do that? Like, how did you get anyone to even want to help you? And she was very direct. And she said, Kirsten, they just need to know why you care. And I said, oh. And so <laughs> and so that really mattered because it was just that piece of life advice. Yeah. I, I hadn't connected the dots. And so that really for, forced me and encouraged me to spend a lot of time with the first responders to yeah. understand exactly what their lives were like, what the horrors were like, what the, what the suffering was like. I mean, it would move me to tears, you know, reading a letter to a husband who is about to die about all the things he's lost and how he can't enjoy food anymore. He can't enjoy his kids anymore. He can't be best friends for his wife. Like, it was just so sad. And so that was the pull I needed to say, it's not about me. It's about them and it's about their lives and what's happening in their lives. And if you can't communicate that effectively, you cannot represent them effectively. But it's also like, I feel like it, someone said to me, someone who's worked with you closely, said to me that you came in thinking about the Senate, not as you're going to be a legislator who slowly works your way up through committee. But like, this is a platform. You're a senator. You're a senator from New York. You get, you can get a lot of attention for issues and use it in that way. Yeah, is I would I would not say that. I would say, I mean, when Jonathan and I decided to even apply for the job, because mm-hmm. it was a, you know, a vetting process right. by the governor. This is for um, the Senate appointment. Senate yeah. appointment. Uh, I had a long discussion with my husband and, um, because our name was on, my name was on a list. Like I was always the bottom of 20 names as a, you know, random woman in the state, basically. You know, I remember a member of the assembly at the time yeah. saying to me the night that it leaked yeah. that you were, so it was the, yeah. and I don't know anything about her except 
she has a voice like a little girl. And I was like, are we really going to do this? Like, yeah. Well, there was a lot of things people didn't like about me. Let's just start there. So John and I had a long talk and he just said, Kirsten, you know, do you think in the Senate, could you help more people? And I said, yeah, my job would be to help 20 million people as opposed to 600,000 people. And he said, well, we're only in this public service at all to help people. So if you think you could do more for more people, you should do it. Yeah. And I did know that the Senate job was different. I knew that and I was surprised by how true this was that any senator can start a debate, stop a debate or shape a debate. Like you have, you don't need to be chairman of a committee to, to advocate an issue. You don't need to be a senior member of the Senate to have a, an issue that's deeply important to you that you never stop fighting for. And I knew that, but I didn't know how true it was. And so my job is not to have a platform. My job is to be a better advocate to help people to move a mountain. If there's a mountain in the way, uh, to get people to care. Mm -hmm. And so you can do that from anywhere, uh, either, uh, either in your committee or outside your committee. I mean, don't ask, don't tell. I wasn't even on the armed services right. committee. And it just, when that issue came to me, it was convicting. And I felt, you know, t Senator Kennedy was the one who championed don't ask, don't tell repeal, but he was dying. When I got to the Senate, he was dying of brain cancer. And so there was no Senator who was going to carry that legislation that year yep. that I could find. And I just knew that these men and women were willing to die for this country. They were willing to sacrifice everything for this country. And that what they wouldn't, shouldn't have to sacrifice is who they love. They shouldn't have to hide who they are, who they love, what's most important to them. And that's why that became such a big issue for me because there was no one else who I could see that was going to do this. And, um, I really empathized and I really felt this is wrong. This is morally wrong. This feeling like you're, you have to speak up because other people aren't doing, it. you have to be the one. It, it struck me like that was part of what happened with the Al Franken, uh, mm -hmm. stuff, right? You said that you were returning donations. You were out front, uh, mm -hmm. on it. And then it's led to other people following suit on mm -hmm. that. It happened with the resignation, calling for his resignation. It also happened a couple of weeks ago with Eric Schneiderman in New York, right? Where these, uh, the allegations, revelations came out. Um, and there it didn't take more than a couple of hours for him to announce that he was resigning. But in that space, you, called for his resignation, it must have been hard to have to be in that position to like, you're going to have to call for another resignation now, right? Well, I'm not alone in those positions. Right. I mean... And Andrew Cuomo called for it too. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, not only did the governor uh, feel he needed to speak out on that, but even with our colleague, I mean, many people uh, felt that way and particularly the women of the Senate. I mean, we'd, we'd really been suffering uh, those couple of weeks because... Yeah. It just got to a point where you had yeah. eight allegations and enough was enough. And it was and not just the women, and, right? And, yeah. Like, and there was many men yeah. who joined. I mean, it was kind of just we were at a point in time uh, where I think for a lot of us, we just we, we couldn't stay silent mm -hmm. any longer. And and I think with Eric, you know, that was, it was shocking. I mean, it was beyond shocking. And I mean, I knew him, too. It's, it it, was, it yeah. was so shocking and, and horrible to hear about the violence he committed. Truly despicable violence. And. I mean, it just, it had to be said um, that it's not okay and that you, you can't do those jobs with that kind of allegations, credibly reported in detail, multiple allegations. And so sometimes you do have to just say what you think and feel on an issue, even though it's painful. And it's, and it's always difficult when it's a colleague, somebody that you have worked with, that you care about, that 
uh, has done good things, mm -hmm. um, you know, good at the things they've done. But you have to, you really have to say what's right, even when it's hard, frankly, especially when it's hard. And it's just, it is what it is. What's it tell you? You knew Schneiderman, you worked with him a lot. Like yeah. that, that moment no, that, know. right? Like that when it, the, when you were at the National Action Network quoting yeah, Ephesians, right he was two seats right over, right? And yeah. nodding along, I should say. Well, we were um, allies on a right. lot of things. You knew Al Franken, you know. Yeah. Uh, look, you were sitting in Roger Ailes' office. All the, like, you know a lot of men where this stuff has come out. What, like, when you think about Schneiderman that you spent all the time with him, you didn't know that as this was happening, he was going home at night and hitting women to the point mm -hmm. where they were having to get medical attention, where the Franken stuff is sort of before you knew him because it was yeah. before you we were both in the Senate. But like, what does that tell you about where things really are on this issue? Is there so much more beneath the surface? Does it scare you to think that there are men that you work with who could have... Well, it's, it's a very sad, it's a sad state of affairs, but it really comes down to this issue of do we value women in society? And, you know, do you believe them? Do mm -hmm. you do you value them? And so one of the reasons why these issues have become so important to me personally is when I've met with survivors in different contexts. I mean, the ending sexual violence in the military was not something I was planning to work on. It was not something that it's I said, like this is going to be my you, issue. Yeah. Um, it, it really had several, several New Yorkers came to me before I actually took the issue up. But it wasn't until a New Yorker handed me a film and said, I just produced this film. You need to watch it and you need to you mm -hmm. tell me what you think. And it was The Invisible War. And if you actually took the time to watch that film, which I recommend you doing, you'll hear the stories about women and men who were so brutally raped, then not only disbelieved, but really aggressively retaliated against. One woman who was raped by multiple people in her, in, in, in her career, they literally threw her into the Bering Sea um, while serving because they wanted her to die. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what retaliation looked like for her. Right, that seems like medieval stuff. It, it's whatever, unbelievable. Right? Yeah, like, and so it was so of offensive and, and upsetting to me to hear these stories of, again, brave men and women who will sacrifice anything. It just made my anger rise in a way that I was going to channel that to do really aggressive reforms that could make a difference. And that's what led into the campus sexual violence stuff. That led into two young girls coming to my office saying, we want to meet with Senator Gillibrand because, you know, she's been a champion on the military, but this is happening on our college campuses. And those two women, uh, Annie and Andrea, um, were then not only highlighted, but their stories were told in those same producers' next, filmmakers' next film, which was The Hunting Ground. So, so a lot of this came to me, but when I hear the stories, it does provoke my anger and concern so intensely that it drives, it can drive advocacy for years. I mean, we're still trying to end sexual violence in the military and it's been five years of working yeah. on this issue every year, every time we have a national defense authorization bill working again to try to get a vote, try to make reforms. So I want to talk about where this puts you. You are mm -hmm. up for reelection to the Senate this year. Um, I think that most people would agree that you are safe for reelection. There is a lot of speculation that you might end up running for president. Mm. What is that thought process like when you uh, people are presenting that to you? I mean, you are a thinking person. You're a politician. Mm. You know this. You've thought about it. What is what goes through your head as you're kind of putting the pieces together? Of course, it's very early, and I don't think you've made a decision. And I'm not trying to box you into that. Right. Well, um, personally, I'm focused on 18, mm -hmm. of course, because I think 18 is so important for my state. It's important. Uh, that I earn um, New Yorkers' votes mm -hmm. to be their champion, to fight for them, to put these values front and center so that we can do good things. 
Um, but when you're, when someone does come up to you and say something nice like that, or you're on a list, of course it's humbling. I mean, it's a big job and it's a very hard job. And I don't know that anybody can imagine themselves doing it and doing it well. Um, and so I just stay focused on my job in front of me. And that's why I really stayed just focused on what we're trying to accomplish in the country and in the state in 18. Um, so I, I'm not thinking about it, but it's a, it's an, it's an enormously, um, it's a, it's a huge, hugely nice thing to say to somebody, but it's also very humbling. Is it, you, you think about what's going on as an issue of wrong, evil, yeah. that you are someone who fights for the right. Does that add to the pressure of that decision that you could not be in a position? Not necessarily, not necessarily because I can serve anywhere. So yeah. like the truth of the matter is I can fight these harms no matter where they are, no matter where I am, whether I'm in the U.S. Senate, whether I'm in the not-for-profit world, mm-hmm. whether I'm a, just an, an advocate marching in the Women's March, like I feel like all of us are called to make a difference and all of us, you know, just like you felt that you needed to do this podcast. Um, the fact that everyone is called to do something. You're doing a good politician move by calling back something. Yes. And, and you, you, but it's true. And I can't tell you how I've heard this from literally every person in my life. The, the, the moment we're in in history is a very stark moment. Uh, this is the first president in my memory that's literally trying to divide the country, yeah. trying to not make the United States of America, but build his walls, create his divisions, have his Muslim ban, um, kick out the immigrants, separate the mom with the baby. Like these decisions are so far outside the norm of what we know to be true that we are all feeling called. And it's it's about doing what we can do where we are. And I can do that in the U.S. Senate. I can do it anywhere. But you think he can't be a two-term president, right? Like that. He will be a two-term president if everyone we know and love doesn't fight back and doesn't try to uh, speak out and be heard. That's why these marches matter. Mm-hmm. It's why the kids who are literally speaking truth to power mm-hmm. on ending gun violence, who stands up to a senator and say, how can you possibly take NRA money? What's wrong with you? Stands up to a, 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 a millions of people and say, I'm calling BS. When mm-hmm. Emma Gonzalez says, I'm calling BS on every yeah. excuse any member of Congress has ever given me. That's powerful and that's transformative. And so if we all do everything we can do, maybe we create enough of a call to action that things do change. But if somebody says to you, Senator, or if they are close to you, Kirsten, mm-hmm. you'd agree we can't have him in the White House for two terms. I agree. The, the, the people who feel that way, and you're the one who can stop it. Right. Doesn't that land on you in a weird way? And, and, and in a, well, a, it's something I'll certainly think about in the future, but not <laughs> today and not when we have this huge mission in front of us. Mm-hmm. That's so important and it's all rising. It's all, I mean, so much of whether we can stop some of the worst things this president wants to do is riding on the election right in front of us. And if we, if we don't do this one right, there's no way we'll unseat him in 20 anyway. Like mm-hmm. you, he, he's, he has the megaphone. He's, mm-hmm. he is defining what his version of right versus wrong is. And it's not consistent with the values, certainly of my state and of the people that I represent. And so that's why the battle in front of us is so important. Will we know by this time next year what your decision is on that? I'm a Politico reporter. Come on. Of course you are. But (laughs) I'm sticking with 18 and I'm doing my job as best I can. 
let me just close with this. Mm-hmm. You, you're writing a children's book. Yes. Can you talk about the children's Great book? <laughs> you're more excited to talk about that than running for president. Yes. <laughs> I'm talking about this because I'm so excited. Um, so I'm writing a children's book from nine years, uh, like six-year-olds to nine-year-olds. And it's on the history of suffrage, which is the women's rights movement mm-hmm. to get the right to vote. And it started uh, in the mid-1800s and went until we finally uh, passed the 19th Amendment in 1920 uh, when it was ratified. And the lives of the women who fought this battle for 70 years are extraordinary. And the, the role models that they not only provide for me personally, but for every kid in America are real. Um, if you look at Harriet Tubman, she was never afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, the lesson she taught me was to have courage and be strong because she not only escaped from slavery, but she ran back to her uh, uh, enslavers and literally rescued her family mm-hmm. members, people she knew and loved. And she did it for years and years and then served in the Civil War as a spy and an armed scout and then uh, started doing suffrage speeches around the country. Like this woman was made of steel. Uh, and so it's like so her, I, I Susan B. Anthony, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh-huh. Alice Paul, Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell. Um, and is it going to be illustrated? It's been illustrated by Myra Coleman, who's this amazing, gifted illustrator. She's done New Yorker covers. She's done lots of children's books before. She's brilliant. And so the pictures of these women, beautiful portraits, I mean, they're going to be posters are mm-hmm. so great. And we pull out a bit of life advice from each one of them about what they did differently and how they did it differently and why they were effective. I mean, you know, Susan B. Anthony, she was effective because she never gave up. She literally worked for suffrage every day of her life and never stopped. Like she just, once the, once it became her issue, it didn't end for 50 years. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, same. Uh, she dared to be different. She was the first one to say, we want the right to vote to be the thing we fight for. Because if we get the right to vote, then all these other rights and privileges fall from it, whether it's property rights, whether it's the ability to keep our kids if we get divorced. I mean, these women had, they couldn't even keep their money. They had literally no property rights. So it, all of them have something to share. What's it called? Bold and brave. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I guess we'll have to come back maybe this time next year to talk about where 2020 might stand by then. Sure. But <laughs> God bless. In the meantime, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much. Okay, so what do you think? Does she sound like someone who will be running for president this time next year? Someone you'd want to see running for president? Exactly the kind of person you don't want to see running for president? What do you make of her calling Trump's administration evil? The whole bit about the devil's schemes? Email me at isaacapolitico.com and let me know. I love hearing from you. I really do. And I will write back. Thanks to Zach Stanton for producing. And remember to subscribe so you don't miss any of those episodes coming. Much more on the agenda, including Boston's Marty Walsh and Miami's Francis Suarez for two more mayors. And please follow me on Twitter at Isaac Dover. And catch you next time on Off Message.